Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Cariad Lloyd. Griefcast is a place to talk, share and laugh about the peculiar human process of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey Griefsters, welcome back. This is Series 7 of The Griefcast. I am Carad Lloyd, your host. Thank you so much for subscribing or downloading this episode. I really appreciate it. Uh, I never thought we'd get to Series 7, but here we are. I just want to say, if you are a new member to this very, very strange club that no one really wants to be part of, I'm very sorry. And I hope that grieving currently in the pandemic is as okay as these things can be probably not great so the main thing we always say on this show and I end every episode with it for a reason is that you are not alone and you are very much not alone at the moment there are lots of us here who were here way before the pandemic and there will be lots of us here afterwards as well and although the club is dreadful you are not alone standing in that club on with the series my first guest of this series is an incredible woman. Her name is Ruth Coker Burks, and she is the author of All the Young Men, How One Woman Risked It All to Care for the Dying, uh, which is published in January, so it's out already. It is an incredible book, and Ruth is the most extraordinary woman, as you will hear me repeatedly saying in this episode, because she, she genuinely, truly is. To give you some context, when Ruth was just 26 in 1986, she ended up helping someone who was dying of AIDS. And that basically became her life for many, many years after that of taking in these young men who the families had rejected, the community had rejected, everyone had rejected, no one wanted to even touch them or give them any medical help. And Ruth nursed them, cared for them, buried them and an extraordinary number of people. And the book just tells her story and and what she went through with that and I, as I said, I really can't recommend it enough. It's, it's a truly amazing thing. And I think, especially in these times, to remember 
the importance of kindness. Um, oh, and just to add, Griefsters, this episode was recorded remotely. Uh, I was in my living room and Ruth was in America and the internet connection was not great. So apologies if the sound is a little fuzzy or sometimes we talk over each other because our connection meant we, we didn't couldn't always hear when the other one was speaking. So um, apologies if you notice that and I hope that you can hear it nice and clearly. Here is the very special Ruth Coker Burks. Hello. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really appreciate it. Ruth, I, I actually don't know where to begin with you <laughs> because I um, I just read your book, um, All the Young oh, Men. Yes. And it's extraordinary. Like, it, it's literally extraordinary. And I speak, so this podcast, as I, you know, is about people who deal, their experiences of grief and death. Yes. And normally how we start the show is we say, oh, you know, who are we remembering today? And it might be, you know, a mother or a father or a child, a very sort of personal relationship. But the experiences that you have been through are almost, it's almost mind boggling. Like, I, I don't know how, I, yeah, like I said, I don't know where to begin with you on that grief journey. Um, right. Why don't we just start with the beginning of, so how, how did this off point. become your life and your work? Well, I, um, my best friend at the time was had oral cancer surgery she had throat cancer at 35 and so she was in the hospital for her fifth uh, reconstructive surgery and you know we got to know the nurses on the fourth floor just so well and i would you know bring cookies and they'd all eat out of the same container you know what if you take something someplace and they eat out of the container and everything and we were friends i thought <clears throat> so one day there were three of the nurses standing and there was this red bag that appeared on the door biohazard how would you like to just be referred to as a biohazard you know and his trays were lined up on the hall about six of them that they had left for him to come out and get them himself and take them in but these three nurses were drawing straws to see who would go in and check on him and whoever got the shortest straw wanted to draw again. You know, they wanted another try. And then they just simply walked off and did their own thing. I just couldn't take it anymore. And I walked into his room. And he was so near death and he was so frail that I couldn't tell him from the sheets in the bed, just the crumpled up sheets. And I walked over and I took his hand and... I asked if there was anything I could do because I knew I wasn't supposed to be in there. And um, he said he wanted his mother. And I thought, wow, that's easy. I can do that. I'll see you later, kind of. You know, that's my good deed I'll do. And so I went out and uh, I didn't think, I thought I'd just tell the nurses he wanted his mother. And of course, they would call and handle it. I didn't think I'd ever see him again. And so I went out and told them that he wanted to see his mother before he died and they go you didn't go into that room did you and I'm like well yeah I did and uh, they said honey his mama's not coming he's been up here six weeks nobody's coming and don't you go back in that room so I uh, got his phone number from his from them from the nurses and they didn't want to give it to me and they finally just kind of threw it at me across the desk and I reached for their phone to call and they go oh no the payphone's down the hall and I thought 
I cannot believe that they are that hateful. They had just finished a banana bread. I had brought them that shift, you know. I went down. I called his mother from the payphone, and they were watching me like a hawk. And so, you know, I told her who I was and, you know, why I was calling. Her son was very ill, very near death. And she goes, I don't have a son and don't call me back. And she hung up on me. And I thought, oh, my God, you did not just hang up on me. So I'm looking at those nurses and they realize that something's going on. So I call her back and I didn't really have two dimes to put in a telephone to waste on a phone call but you know it was a pay phone and so I called her back and I told her that if she didn't if she hung up on me one more time I would put her son's cause of death in the newspaper and list his hometown and I had her attention then and she said I don't know what you've got up there but that's not my son my son died years ago when he went gay. Don't call me back and hung up on me again. And so I walked, I didn't know what I was going to do and what was I going to tell this young man who, you know, was clearly dying at that point. And he was so young. He looked like he was 12 years old, but he was so young. He was in his 20s. And, um, I went back in and he, I took his hand and he looked up at me and he said, Oh, Mama, I knew you'd come. What was I supposed to do? And I said, I'm here, honey. I'm here. And I'll be right back. I promise you I'll be right back. And so I went to Bonnie's room, hoping that she would say, No, I need you staying here. And she wrote on her pad, I'm fine. I don't need you. He does. So I went back in and I stayed with him for 13 hours while he died. Oh my God. Ruth, so I'm just, (laughs) what an extraordinary person you are. Was that the first time you'd, you'd seen someone die that up close? Oh no, no. When I was five, or actually uh, all of my childhood that I remember, my daddy was dying. He was, uh, 60 when I was born and a World War One and World War Two veteran and he had emphysema and lung cancer when my mother married him and uh, he wanted a baby girl before he died so here I am but uh, no she, he, he uh, we kept him at home while he died and he died on Thanksgiving Day when I was five and uh, which is a big family holiday over here. My mother took me next door to her sister's house who had two, three grandchildren. And she said, Jim died this morning. Can Ruth eat with you? And she says, no, it's just for my family and sent us on our way. So I couldn't even eat with them. And (laughs) it was a real loving family, the whole family, it was great. And so anyway, but we kept my grandfather home while he died. And we just, you know, people didn't, we didn't have that many nursing homes and everybody kept their, you know, relatives at home. So when you were in that, when you were in that hospital room, did you feel like, yeah, I'm someone who can hold this, you know, this man's hand where he dies. Like this is something I have the strength to do. Yes, I, I, I did. It's just extraordinary, Ruth, because I just feel like so many people would have, especially, so what What year are we talking then? It's 1980? 84. Which is, you yeah. know, like, 
as you talk about in the book, is just at the as the AIDS crisis is sort of really kicking in, and people yes. really didn't know what they were dealing with. And it, it's funny as I was reading the book, you know, you were talking a lot about people's fears of this virus, and obviously, yes. Yes. <laughs> the time we're in now, it feels so connected to that fear of and I thought it was extraordinary you keep talking about like you know people just they just didn't know how it was being spread much like we had at the beginning of last year of people just exactly didn't know. yes and it's that fear that you know like you said it's so easy for people to just turn the other cheek walk away it says biohazard on a door like just don't go in like <laughs> you're right, an extraordinary right. person that you that you went in and held his hand well, see, I don't see it that way because <laughs> the nurses should have been in there. Yeah. The nurses should have been in there, but they weren't. And, you know, I was I was called into a situation, and what was I supposed to do? Walk away? No. Mm. I stayed with him, and I bathed him. I took a pan, a, a pail of warm, wa- soapy water and a washcloth and a towel, and I cleaned his face and his hair, and, you know, his he was so dehydrated, he couldn't cry anymore. Oh, my God. I, you know, I cleaned him, and I took care of him, and I sang lullabies and old spirituals to him and just whatever to occupy the time, and I, you know, just told him about hot springs and just anything, and, you know, pretty soon after I went in there, he went in, you know, he kind of lost consciousness, and then, you know, he eventually died. But I feel like that when people are dying, and I've always read, and I feel that it's true, that um, hearing is the last thing to go. Mm. And so I just wanted the last words that he heard to be that I loved him and that he was a very valuable person and a good person, and he was going to go back to the people who loved him and didn't judge him, and he'd go back to a God that loved him and didn't judge him. I mean, I know you say, like, you were just doing what needed to be done, and of course, you're right. <laughs> In so many <laughs> ways, you, you were just doing what, what someone should have been doing, but it's still it's still an extraordinary it's still an extraordinary thing to do and I, I, I guess I think so I if you the reason I do this show is my dad died when I was fifteen of pan oh, wow. of yeah, pancreatic cancer. So That's a brutal one. Oh, it is a brutal one, it really is, yeah. yeah. And I was I was there when he died and um have subsequently been there when um my father in law and mother in law passed away. And I just it's such a profound thing when when someone you know and love dies that I think it, it it's it, yes. it is incredible that to sit and give that honor to someone you don't know just because they're a human and they deserve it when it right. you know, would have been so easy to just walk away and you would you were doing good anyway you were there for your friend do you know what I mean so like you were already right. yes earning your stripes as a good person like I'm here for my friend my <laughs> friend is sick I'm doing all the good I need to do today so it's just to go above and beyond and then I wondered if you would mind just telling the listeners because I know having read the books what happened after that man died and the situation you were left in with his ashes oh yes uh, so when he died I called his mother one more time and I said don't hang up I need permission to cremate and she said I don't care what you do with the body don't send it to me mm. 
And I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> and the nurses had asked me, well, now, what are you going to do with him? And I'm like, me? Wait a minute. He's yours, not mine. But they they wouldn't even take him down to the morgue because they didn't want to contaminate the morgue, if you can believe that. You know, I called around and called around to the funeral homes. And if there, you know, I was young and here I'm making uh, and you can tell by someone's voice about how, I can about how old they are <clears throat> sometimes, and so they could tell that I, you know, wasn't really old enough to be making these decisions. And they would ask how old the person was, you know. And the minute I would tell them that he was in his twenties, they knew what it was. Mm. Well, why isn't his wife making these arrangements? Well, he's not married. They knew. They knew. And so automatically they were full, couldn't take them, whatever. So I finally called around and uh, I had to go about 75 miles out of town to this little Delta town that I, I had seen a funeral home that the grass and weeds had grown up. So I knew they were in trouble and I had passed them enough driving that I remembered their name. And so I called them and they said, well, we'll come and get him, but you know, it's gotta be after dark and it's gotta be, you know, we'll have to wear protective gear and all of that. And I said, well, that's fine. They go, nothing but cremation. We won't touch the body. I said, that's fine with me too. And so uh, I, you know, paid for it. And I guess a couple of weeks later, I was sitting on my sofa and the mailman knocked on the door and he said here's a package for you and I was so excited I thought oh my gosh who sent me a present <laughs> and because it comes through the regular post oh my God. and oh yeah and all of them do and so anyway I opened it up and it was his ashes and I thought oh my gosh this is this just got real so I um, got a chipped cookie jar one that had been broken or you know maybe it wasn't fired right and glazed right and that was on the discount table at my friend's pottery shop and that's what I put him in and I sealed it up real good with caulk and I went one night and buried him on top of my daddy's grave because I was terrified that somebody would find out what I was doing and at that point there wasn't a judge alive that wouldn't have taken my daughter away from me oh my goodness it's just like <laughs> I mean I know it's funny because I was when I was reading your book I was like this sounds like a film and then I I read in the press release that <laughs> like, it's being turned into a film because I was just like this is just <laughs> like you know you have to bury him at night you have to make all these like right. everything about it it's like you almost can't believe it's real because it's just it's such good narrative for a story right. <laughs> and I just wanted to ask you when when you buried his ashes why was it so important to you to to bury these ashes what was it inside you that was thinking this like I have to do some ritual for this person because everybody deserves something when they die everybody deserves a song sung at their funeral at their grave and everybody deserves the dignity of a funeral and I just felt that I wanted to put him there and, you know, maybe his mother would change her mind and want his ashes later on and never heard from her again. So that was, you know, that didn't work out. But I just, you know, it's just the ritual of the funeral is so important for people and a place to lay a flower. People need a place to lay a flower. You say it so, like, 
the way you say it is so I don't know it's like it's so simple and so obvious but yeah I think sometimes people just don't take that into account and I think it's incredible that you had that foresight to know that these these boys as you call them your boys needed somewhere to rest yes they did and you know their friends you know later on when I found people that had friends their friends needed to go out and talk to them you know if you if your sister Mary dies and her husband has her ashes on his mantle well what if you need to talk to her where do you go who do you you know people need a place to go to talk to someone but how did you I just find it extraordinary that you just knew that well, see, part of that was learned from that big fight with my mother and my uncle because my mother got mad at her uncle when I was 10 at my grandmother's funeral and she bought up all the remaining grave spaces in the family cemetery, 262, so that he and his family couldn't be buried with the rest of us. And she had her marker put down that said, Woe be unto ye hypocrites, Pharisees, and scribes. And that was all meant for him. So I heard this every day. I'd go to my aunt's house and she would say, You go up and you tell your mother when she dies, we're going to change that marker. Well, I'd go up the hill and tell her what her sister said. And she'd go, well, you go down there and you tell. So I was the go-between. I was the only one that spoke to everybody in the whole family. So I saw what that did to families. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, you learned a lot from paying attention. (laughs) It's just extraordinary. It's almost like this sort of strange, um, perfect set of circumstances that made you the right person at the right time to deal with these men and the sickness that they were dealing with? You know, it kind of did. It really did because my mother was at a tuberculosis sanitarium most of my life and she only got out because daddy was near death Mm. and I was his only caregiver as a child. So, and then when she came home, I was her caregiver. Yeah, so you you had come from a lot of caring, I guess. And when you do yes. that as a child, it kind of, yeah, I guess it becomes just what you do. Yes, it is. There's an amazing passage in the book where you describe as the AIDS crisis gathers momentum, where you are particularly, and you describe taking up your boys up to that cemetery and then sort of choosing where they, those ashes, their ashes are going to be placed by you. I just wonder yes. what was it like to to watch these men that you knew and cared for literally standing where they wanted to be buried. Very comforting. It's very comforting. And, uh, you know, it wasn't morose or anything. And, uh, you know, we, I just, you know, just walk until you find some place and you watch them and they they really do. They walk and they'll walk around and, you know, maybe read some of the monuments, maybe not. And they'll just find a place and they'll just hover there. And I usually pretty much know which place they're going to pick out. It's a little game. I guess I play with myself. But um, anyway, and that's, you know, then I walk over to him and I would, you know, say, I think this is a pretty good spot. And he'd say, I think so too. And I said, well, perfect and you know let's go eat pizza or something like that and you describe just like write like noting it down in your journal yes 
I just never thought that I would do it more than once. And then the men just kept coming and kept coming. And, I, you know, word just got out that there was this woman in Hot Springs who wasn't afraid of you. And uh, the calls, they just started and they never stopped. How did you cope at that point, having to keep, you know, keep burying your friends? Well, I used to, you know, I'd go to three funerals a day sometimes, maybe two, maybe in three different towns. Um, And, you know, people say, well, how do you send all that? Oh, it doesn't bother me, but it does. I mean, 30 years later, you know, here I am um, with a broken body and um, I've had a stroke. I had viral pericarditis which is the pericardium holds your heart in place and it was inflamed so all they can do is give you steroids and morphine and send you home for three months until it dies out and um, then I had a stroke and then I had diabetes and then oh I had a blood clot in each lung that was fun so uh, (laughs) you know that didn't bother me at all (laughs) That's incredible. That, But I don't what, want to blame anything on my guys. No, no, of course not. But I think there's a lot of inf- information now about how emotion affects, affects the body. And obviously, I think that's right. interesting that you were saying that, you right. know, something that's holding your heart was inflamed. I mean, yeah, it, it sounds like it was yes. because your heart must have been just breaking over and over again. Yeah. Oh, no, but see, I couldn't cry. I'm not a big crier to begin with, but I couldn't cry when anybody died because their friends needed me to stay strong for them. And so I just, you know, you keep all that in and then, you know, you keep the rage in from the people who are so mean to them and the the good Christians who sit in church and throw their money in the pot every Sunday and feel so pious and go out to lunch at the country club and never do anything for anybody. But, you know, they love to criticize me for what I was doing, taking care of people whose families abandoned them. And I thought that was something that everybody would admire and, uh, and you know, would want to help me do it. And uh, I thought, oh, have you ever seen the movie Dances with Wolves? It has Kevin Costner in it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so he goes out. I don't remember his name, his character in the movie, but he goes out on the Western Front to this abandoned fort and gets it ready for the cavalry. Yeah. And the cavalry never comes. That's what happened to me. I thought, oh, if I just tell the leaders of town that this is happening in their town, then they will do something about it. Or if I let the doctors and nurses know, they'll say, where are they? And I'll take them and they'll help them. That never happened. (laughs) That never happened. And one night Billy was in the emer or at the emergency room and they would not let him into the hospital, even in the dead of cold winter, they would not let him in the hospital and kept a guard to keep him outside of the doors because they were not equipped for an AIDS patient. They called the sheriff to come and pick him up. And there we were standing in the parking lot. They're not letting him in. The sheriff's certainly not letting him in his car. 
And um, so I just told, I called the administrator of the hospital at two o'clock in the morning and I asked him how would he like some free publicity? Because I was about to give him more free publicity than he could say grace over. All of the TV stations would be there at five o'clock in the morning and they wanted to find out how they can help you get ready for an AIDS patient. And, you know, miraculously, they let him in the emergency room, but they also put a guard at his door with a gun to keep him from hurting someone. It's just extraordinary because I think it's it's not that long ago, but it's really easy for us to forget what was what it was like right. at, at the height of that crisis and how scared people were and how much ignorance there was. You know, to even like on envelopes that you get in the mail that, or if you send an envelope and you just peel off a little sticker on the back and seal the envelope, you don't have to lick it. Those were invented because of AIDS. The postage stamps that you don't have to lick, that's because of HIV. People were terrified that they would get a letter in the mail with somebody had licked a stamp or the envelope had HIV. Oh my goodness. It was brutal. I had no idea that's why you have the sticky stamps. <laughs> like, yeah. I just thought that was like, oh, that's, I suppose it's easier. <laughs> like, right. No, that's because people were terrified of envelopes. Oh, my God. And do you, I mean, I just want to ask you, like, how you feel about what's happening now in the, this pandemic? Because it's it's a funny situation because when I was reading your book, it reminded me so much of what we're going through now. You know, the fear, people didn't really understand right. what was happening. But it's so interesting that what we are playing out now is it's affecting everyone. And what oh, and yes. what played out in the 80s was it was a very clear group and you could point at them and you could say, if we keep them away from us, we'll be okay. Right. And now we, we can't do that because, you know, it's uh, coronavirus can affect there's, anybody and anywhere. Yeah, there's no them and us. There's no them and us. Together. But isn't it sort yeah. of scary to see how the them and us was, was played out in the 1980s? And thank God coronavirus doesn't have that because what would we be dealing with now? Oh, absolutely. I know that when... Um, and I was also not only the face of AIDS, but I was the face of the gay community, basically in America, because so many people, you know, was afraid to be out front. And I didn't, I guess I was too uh, ignorant to realize what was happening. But, um, you know, even over here, Trump did not want this ship to dock. He made it set off the coast of um uh, Oakland, California for a week because there were nine people on it and he didn't want the numbers mm. on him. Mm. That was in the very, very beginning. So when they finally, the man got off the ship, but the woman was still on and he went home and he complained to the news media that people were not coming to his little gas station because they had COVID. And so it did start out in the beginning like that. Mm. And people were terrified of each other. And now everybody's afraid of everybody else. It's a very sad <laughs> Yeah, the situation. them and us is literally, yeah, it's become them and us is your household versus the world. Oh, it is. And then over here, it's so political. I mean, right now, I can see the TV downstairs. Oh, my goodness. And it's, yeah, we're having the, um, the impeachment debate. Yes, yes. And they're, you know, it, 
it's just awful. But um, the them and us, hopefully, I don't know. I don't know if it'll ever go away at this point. But, um, you know, something will have to bring us back together. Mm. And I'm really not sure what that is. But, you know, the pendulum swings both ways. And we're just at an extreme swing right now. And we mm, haven't started. Mm. We're all the way up, and we're we'll start on the way down, and it just depends on how fast it goes. Well, you're making me feel as to where it ends up on which side. You're making me feel much better about it, Ruth, because <laughs> it's very hopeful what you're saying. <laughs> it's very hopeful. That's true. You're right. It, it well, does swing both ways, and what goes up must come down. So hopefully, we are on the bit where but, it all comes tumbling down. Right, but it can always go the other way on the pendulum yeah. and swing too far down. Yeah. But you know, hopefully, it'll eventually land in the middle for a while. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. So I just wanted to ask you as well, when you were dealing with this at, the, you know, the height of the crisis, and as you say in the book, you know, people were just hoping for a vaccine, hoping for drugs, and it was, it was, such, a, it was such a genuine crisis. As we moved into the 90s and, you know, drug therapy took place and there became that hope, yes. how did you feel when suddenly this sort of, hurricane you'd been going through was kind of starting to slow what was that like for you well i was so happy when people started living mm. and see my guys already lived two years longer than the national average wow. and yeah they uh they 
came down from the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, the National Institute of Health, the NIH, and uh, they sent people down to study us for a week to see what it, why my guys were living, because the national average was six weeks between diagnosis and death. And what did they find out? What were you doing? I loved them. I showed them love and, and compassion and humanness. And that's the, uh, they actually, in 2014, when the first article came out about me that really blew me wide open, um, it was a fabulous article. But the, the JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, said, who knew that of all the equipment and tests and expensive equipment, that all it, need, all it took was love. And I was vindicated. Wow. Well, if you make me want to cry. <laughs> because it's just, it's so, sorry, I really swear. I hope you don't, I'm a bit of a swear. But it's so effing simple. Like, if you just, right. like, love them. Like, we're humans. Yeah. We all need it. Like, babies without love don't develop as well as babies that do get love. You know, that, like, there's so many... Right things now where we know this how emotions do affect us and um oh exactly there's so many studies that you know women giving birth have more complications if they don't have the same midwife or if they're not talking you know all of this stuff is right is there in fact and and you were just you were just living it when no one knew that when when there was this real heavy dependence as you said on drugs and you know everything's going to fix it this way whereas actually you know I thought that was interesting in the book as well when you were describing just getting them to eat, you know, talking about all that really rich food and just yes. <laughs> like fattening them up. And I, oh, yeah. it felt so, it felt so motherly. <laughs> it it, it kind of was. Yeah. Get a big fat school roll on your lunch plate. <laughs> <laughs> but and yeah, and who, I guess you're also were offering them hope to live that oh, because exactly. as you said, so many of these, these, it's, Men they, had been completely disabandoned by their family. Exactly. The, you know, that's all they needed was a little love and a little hope. But it's amazing how far a little hope can take you. Just a little bit. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're, we're discovering that now as we live through a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, like things that were the simplest things. But think about it. If we didn't have hope that there would be a vaccine soon or hope that... Well, it's, you know, getting close to the end of the day here. So maybe in the morning, you know, I'll turn on the news and it'll be better. That's what, you know, that's what you live for. And that's what, that's all my guys had was hope. They didn't have anything else. But Mm. they lived until they died. It's just extraordinary that, that that's what you were able to offer them was love and hope. But what else do you need? Yeah. I was just wondering how how you have dealt with that many deaths in remembering them because you must have so many anniversaries to deal with and so many places in hot springs that remind you of you know one of your boys like how do you cope with that many memories of and all that grief oh they're all together they're all at the bar they're all just doing different things and it's like they're all still living with me every day and uh, I talk to them all day long or whatever it Mm. is I mean I don't sit at home and talk to them but you know I'll see something that reminds me of one of them and I'll say something and I just feel them around me 
And it's like with my daddy. He died in 1964, mm. and he has been with me. It's like he's held my hand every day of my life. And uh, I've never gone a day without thinking about him. And not in a sad way, or not that I wish, you know, when I was young, I wished he was here. But then I just accepted that he wasn't here, and he hasn't been here for longer than, you know, almost longer than I've been alive, but it's been a long time, but he's never missed a day with me. I know in the book you talk as well about about your faith and about how the church didn't right. behave in the way that exactly. you wanted them to, certainly in a way that seemed Christian. Did you ever have a crisis of faith when you were dealing with so much hatred no, from the church? I just couldn't understand why they couldn't see what I saw. And how was it that I'm sitting there and I'm listening to the same sermon tell me the same thing? You know, Jesus says, love one another. If you take food to the hungry, you know, feed the hungry, take care of the sick, take care of the homeless, take care of the lepers. Whoever is in society, do all of that unto me. And then, you know, Jesus also said, you know, when they ask, well, Lord, I didn't see you. Well, I was the beggar on the street that you didn't feed. And I was, you know, the person that knocked on your door and you didn't let me in. And that's the way it was. And how do I know that Jesus wasn't any one of the people that had AIDS or many of them to test the Christians and see, you know, or test anyone and see, look, you had a chance to live your faith, and they didn't, or maybe worse off, they did. Yeah, I thought there was an extraordinary bit in your book where the, um, sorry, I'm not very good with titles, The re it was the reverend yes. at the yes. church who had kind of rejected you and them, who then years later apologized to you, and I think the what phrase you used was, you know, I accept your apology, but I can't forgive you because that was their job and then they're dead. That's it. I told them that, you know, it wasn't my place to forgive you and uh, you need to take it up with them when you get to heaven. And I want to say if, but he, he, wow. <laughs> he was an old man trying to get into heaven at that point, so I didn't want to blow the whole thing. <laughs> That was very Christian of you, Ruth. It was. It really was. <laughs> Did not say, huh? Yeah, I told you so. But yeah. no, I, you know, it wasn't my place to forgive him. And it was up to him to find them and apologize to them. Hmm. It was up to them to forgive him. How do you feel about your own mortality, about your own death, having seen so many people die? Do you, Is it something you're very aware of? Is it something you fear? I don't, I don't fear it at all. Um, I almost died from the blood clots a few years ago. I had a big one in each lung, and when I got to the hospital, they wouldn't even let me move. I mean, I couldn't even cough or sneeze. I was so near, you know, having them go into my heart and kill me. And, uh, you know, when I had the stroke, they said I had a 70% chance of dying that first year. And I thought, well, you let me out of here and I'll show you. And uh, then, you know, with the viral pericarditis, I didn't know that was my first go around. I didn't know if I was going to die from that, but I sure didn't mind. The pain was so bad. But now that I'm on the tail end, well, not the tail end of my life, I figure I might have 20 years left. 
And, you know, your mortality comes up, but mine always did because, you know, I didn't know my agreement with God was, you know, if I'm going to take care of these people, please don't let me get it. And he didn't. But that was all we knew to do back then was to cross our fingers and, you know, hope that you didn't die. But, um, you know, you just hope, I hope that I've done a good job and I've, you know, left a good mark in this world. And I hope that, you know, people will speak of me with kindness after I'm dead. I mean, how could they not, Ruth? Well, you know, you never know. <laughs> they tried to find a preacher to preach this old country boy's funeral and they couldn't find anybody. And they finally found this man in the next county and he came up and everybody was just standing there on bated breath to see what he was going to say about this mean man. And he stood up and he said, all I can say is his brother was worse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, that's brilliant. But Ruth, you've just lived this extraordinary life. And I think it's just, I wonder how you feel the conversation about death has changed. Because, so I've been doing this podcast for four years. And even in that four years, and especially now during the pandemic, people are willing to talk about death. Obviously I'm English and people struggle here to talk about and be emotional. I wondered how you feel. Do you feel like it's something people are, are... are able to discuss more and are able to be more aware of their mortality? Or do you think it in America, is it, is it still this very taboo subject? Um, maybe, maybe not. It, it got better. And now people don't want to talk about death because they're afraid they'll wish it on them. It's, it, it's very mm. superstitious. People are very superstitious about death. They don't call it superstition over here, but it is. Mm. And um, I've worked in the funeral business for many years and worked when I was in Florida with many different religions and nationalities. And it was beautiful seeing their different expressions uh, at a funeral and, uh, and their different customs and their rituals. But I'm in a very conservative part of America. I mean, it's 98% Republican and 98% white in the county I live in. Wow. And uh, they they like to keep it. Uh, it's very strange. Evangelicals over here, they really wanted a race war so they could die and it would bring on the end of the world and they would go to heaven, you know, and be lifted up and all of that. And... Um, they were really rooting for something while Trump was in office. And I don't know what they're going to do now because, uh, you know, our new president wants everybody to live instead of die. So I guess hopefully the the conversation will change. Yeah, you can hope. That's all I guess we can hope is that people, like you said, I think what you said was so beautiful, start applying love rather than hate and fear but it's it's hard for some people it really is it seems like the more mired down you are in your own religion the more fear you have and you know maybe it's the fear yeah in the baptist in most of the mainstream um well not methodist because we don't have enough religion to offend anyone but in like the baptist and the evangelical churches they live to die they do nothing but talk about when you go to hell and this is what's going to happen when you die and go to hell 
And I just didn't want to hear that. You know, I want to know what I'm going to do while I'm living to make life better because I'm not going to hell. So I need some guidance, you know, <laughs> and that's why I changed religions. I didn't want my daughter raised that way. Yeah, I found that really fascinating in the book. Obviously, we don't have the same. I Yeah, I did. Obviously, the, the English religious system is very different to the American religious system. And right. we obviously do have fire and brimstone over here, but in a slightly different way that right. that you were talking about. And yeah, I found it I found it fascinating how deeply entrenched some people were in the religion like you said that there was just this absolute fear oh, um, of homosexuality and everything oh, it bore it's unbelievable yeah it is isn't it when you sort of stand back from it and it you know i think it's it's so easy sometimes to judge other cultures but i do think it's very strange that but as you describe in the book some people are so entrenched in their own religion they've reached this point where they would rather their child was dead than homosexual Oh, yes. And I just wondered back in the day if it was the AIDS that they were afraid of or if it was the gay. Because mm. many of them, I don't think, even knew what AIDS was. No, no. Are you going to be buried on your family plot? Is that your plan? Uh, I'll be cremated and put with my guys. Put with your guys. That's so beautiful, Ruth. Yeah. Got my spot picked out. It's going to be next to Daddy. There's a, a spot right there. Oh, well, Ruth, I hope that you, I hope you don't get there very soon. <laughs> no, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you've got it ready, but I hope it's a long time right. before you, before you lay yourself down to rest. The book is extraordinary, Ruth. I, I honestly, I, I, I kept reading it and thinking, oh, I'll, I'll just stop. I'll stop. And then your life would take another twist. <laughs> I'd be like, right. what? What just <laughs> happened? So I couldn't put it down because I kept thinking this, this, what you've oh. been through is just, and your strength and your humor in, in the spite of it all is incredible. You've got to have humor. You've got to have a sense of humor. You no really matter do. How, how warped it is, you've got to have it. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's why this this podcast exists to kind of have a sense of humor about grief and exactly. death because you need do you, it. Do you know Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island? <laughs> no. You'll have to sing it sometime and get that earworm. Oh my goodness! Yes, please. <laughs> um. Well, we thank you so much for talking to me. I really, really appreciate it. And well, thank I think you for a lovely interview. I appreciate it so much. You had great questions. Oh, God. but yeah, thank you so much. I could, I just wish I could, you know, be in the room and talk with you properly because you have had such a fascinating life and your wisdom is, is really wonderful to hear. So, you know, thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'll be over there someday and we'll meet then. Yeah, one day. All the Young Men, How One Woman Risked It All to Care for the Dying by Ruth Coker Burks is published by Trapeze and is available to buy now. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast. The show was edited by Kate Holland. Music was provided by The Glue Ensemble. And the show was recorded in my living room. And I think Ruth had to sit on the stairs to be nearer her router to try and get better sound quality. If you like the show, please do subscribe, rate, review any episodes or the series. It means a huge amount to me. So thank you if you've done it already. And remember, you are not alone.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 